from the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. I don't know why everybody's freaking out. I had 30 seconds to spare. <laughs> Sitting here twiddling my thumbs waiting for the show to start. Welcome to EWTN's Open Line Monday. If you'd like to be on the program, Father John Tregilio is in the house. He's back home, ladies and gentlemen, live from the Mount. Father John Tregilio. Uh, if you'd like to talk to Father, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Our celebrity producer today is Mr. Charles Beery. Matt Gubensky handling our social media efforts. And Jeff Burson, above and beyond person, is handling our social media efforts today. I told Jeff he started a new band today. Uh, the Rolling Kidney Stones, as Jeff is uh, prone to kidney stones from time to time, and he is battling those, but still fulfilling his responsibilities to bring you the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So keep Jeff in your prayers. And uh, our host, as he is every single Monday, the one and only Father John Tregilio. How are you? I'm doing well. (laughs) The calendar has rolled over to August, and... Academia calls once again, huh? Well, actually, uh, we don't start until the twenty-second. Uh, when now? When do they start rolling onto campus? Did the does new, that depend the new, on where the they newbies, are? The... <laughs> the newbies get here around the eleventh and twelfth, and then the old uh, veterans get here uh, on the fifteenth. Yeah, so um, you'll have a whole, probably a whole batch of uh, fresh off their transitional diaconate summer folks. Oh yeah, they'll be they'll be here for sure. <laughs> I know how happy they're going to be, but they'll be here. <laughs> Setting the example that I'm I'm sure that they uh, that they need to. So do you do you see some trends that that uh, tend to repeat themselves from year to year as these gentlemen move through their formation? Well, it's like you know the closer they get to ordination, the more. Uh, antsy they are to get out, <laughs> which I remember quite well when I was in the <laughs> seminary. And then the new guys are sort of befuddled and bewildered. And so, uh, and then we got everything in between. Is it, is it interesting? I'm sure you probably, you probably see some transformations, uh, during the course of the oh, formation yeah, of these yeah. men. And I'm sure that there are, there are, uh, some newbies that have walked on campus that you may have have thought to yourself without articulating to anybody else, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know about this guy. And then by the time <laughs> and by the time he's ordained, yeah. he's com- been completely transformed, huh? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd have to say, you know, a lot of the guys come in and you don't necessarily say to yourself, you know, how did he get in? But <laughs> um, <laughs> you see them maturing and, uh, you know, fostering a real priestly heart. And then in the summer, most of them work in a parish. So that pastoral hands-on experience is really vital to them because, you know, we hit them with the academic. They do some pastoral work here uh, one day a week, but I think that whole summer pastoral experience really complements what they do in the classroom and what they do in the chapel. You know, there there are so many facets to the jewel that is the sacred priesthood. Do you? I'm sure you spend some, some uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, uh, intentional time during their formation, impressing upon them the importance of of doing the things that maybe aren't the most favorite parts of the calling for for them. <laughs> yes, I in fact I have a, a whole seminar on uh, running a parish, and I said you know, in addition to the sacraments and you know. Uh, and counseling and all that uh, stuff that we're primarily ordained for. You got the more mundane things like filling out paperwork or when they say, Father, the toilet's plugged and you have to go <laughs> and do something about it because there's no plumber at uh, 3 a.m. on a Saturday after bingo just got finished. Um, so there's that managerial uh, part of it that, you know, they say, well, was I ordained for that? I said, well, guess what? Husbands and, and uh, fathers do a lot besides the you know primary thing of being a loving dad or fa- husband they got to put a roof over their head they got leaky faucets they've got uh you know things uh, more mundane things uh than they can imagine and i think once they appreciate that that this isn't a competition between you know the mundane and the sacred but that it's part of a whole picture yeah it's uh it, and it's a path to holiness Oh, yeah, and I said, you know, look at St. Joseph and the Blessed Mother. 99% of their time was spent doing ordinary, mundane things. And then, of course, they did their daily prayer. They went to the temple. They went to the synagogue. But, you know, like St. Jose Maria Escrivá would say, you know, they sanctified themselves through daily work. And we want the seminaries to realize that, you know, there's going to be part of their work um, as a priest, which may not be that glamorous or may not be that readily visible as spiritual, but it's nevertheless uh, important because you've got to be a good steward as well yeah. as a good pastor. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because one of the, we have a, a one of the, one of the church, we have a couple, but one of the church buildings here in particular is a beautiful kind of Romanesque, uh, cruciform, uh, hundred year old plus church. And the holy water fonts are built into the walls, as you see in buildings like that, not infrequently. And I remember going to pray, this is several years ago now, and this was a priest who I, I already had a tremendous amount of respect for, but there's nobody there. I went in to pray, and, and he's there with his bottle of bleach and his, <laughs> his bottle of holy water, and he is bleaching out all of the holy water fonts around the church, uh, making sure that they're not you know, getting uh, in, a, in a, you know, a state of bacterial challenge. Uh, or anything like that, but but I, I just I remember thinking to myself that, you know, this is a holy person that is that is joyfully about the business of, you know, taking care of the little things. Oh yeah, and you know, like Saint Teresa, the little flower said, "It's little things done well, done often, done out of love, you know, that mean most to God." 
Uh, we got an email here from Albert, and he says, My wife's mother was married in a Presbyterian service. She's civilly divorced and now will remarry in a Methodist church. The pastor has no problem remarrying her, even though it goes against Matthew 19. We brought it up to her that to avoid... Uh, that to avoid the sin of bigamy, she would need to get an annulment from her first marriage. She says, I'm not Catholic. I don't need it. Does she need to get an annulment? If so, would she need to go to the Catholic parish to do it, even though she doesn't recognize the legitimacy of the Catholic Church, and she's not a Catholic? Yes, if she was um, if she was baptized uh, Christian but not a Catholic Christian, and she was married for the very first time to her first husband and he was baptized as well even though they're they're non-catholic that first uh, marriage would be considered valid as long as this was their first marriage for both of them Um, protestant christians um, they are not under our our jurisdiction so uh, they can get married any way they 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 choose they get married by a a, a minister um, justice of the peace captain stooping on the love boat you know Whereas Catholic Christians and Orthodox Christians, they have to be married by the priest uh, or the deacon unless there's a dispensation from the bishop. So if she was validly married the first time, then to prevent her from committing, um, you know, being in an invalid marriage, and and again, it, w- it would be uh, adultery if you're validly married and then now you're getting into a second union or uh, relationship that's not recognized by God or the church, uh, she would need to get an annulment um, where the marriage took place, where she lives, or where the ex-husband lives would all be competent places that they could start that. Now, I know non-Catholic Christians say, well, you know, why should I bother doing this? Um, because we take very seriously what Jesus said. If a man uh, divorces his wife and remarries, he commits adultery, and likewise with, with the woman. So, you know, we want to take Jesus at his word and you know this isn't something he's doing to be mean but because that bond is so uh special and is permanent now annulment is not the equivalent of a catholic divorce an annulment says there was no valid sacrament in the beginning of in that first uh what we call putative marriage therefore that person would be able to get married uh civilly for the second time but in the eyes of god for the first time 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Ricky in Nebraska, Ava driving through the great state of Oregon, and Adriana in Miami, Florida. We've got plenty of time for your calls as well. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Ricky in Lincoln, Nebraska, fell off the line, so we're getting him queued back up and ready to go. In the meantime, Bo's watching us on YouTube, and he says, Why is the psalm numeration different in some Bible translations? For example, Psalm 130 is numbered in some Bibles as 129. 
It's <laughs> a good question. Uh, the 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 reason why there's a different numbering. You, there's always 150 psalms. The reason why there's a different numbering. It's similar to why there's a different numbering of the Ten Commandments. There's the Catholic Lutheran uh, numbering, and then you've got the Swiss Reformed uh, Protestant one. With the Psalms, you know, we have one numbering system that's based on the Greek text from the Septuagint, um, which was uh, written in between 250 B.C. Uh, and going as back maybe 100 or 50 uh, B.C. And that was uh, written for uh, the Jews who were in exile, who were in part of the diaspora, part of the Babylonian captivity, because maybe three-fourths or more of the world's Jews when they were um, scattered by the Babylonians, more of them spoke Greek than Hebrew. So the Septuagint was a Greek translation uh, of the Old Testament. And then you've got the Hebrew uh, translation and numbering system. So in like the Douay Reims version of the Bible, the Catholic Bible uh, uses the, um, the Greek numbering system. Um, newer Bibles like the New American, the Jerusalem Bible, uh, they use... Um, uh, the Hebrew one. So it's the same Psalms. It's just where you decide to count the number because the author of the Psalms, like the, all, the, all the sacred authors, had no chapter or verse. So when David's writing the Psalms, he didn't put Psalm 142. <laughs> he just wrote a Psalm and the, the, the numbers were assigned to those texts. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. First up today is Ricky, a first-time caller in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, listening or watching us today on YouTube. Ricky, thanks for calling back. You're on with Father John. Hey, guys. Can you can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Go right ahead. Okay, perfect. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Um, so I, uh, I'm a non-Catholic, but I'm doing some investigating. Um, but one thing I struggle with um, is the notion of uh, government and uh, the idea of um, when Constantine comes into power, um, or I should say Christianity legal in that sense, uh, there seems to be kind of a blending of, of uh, church and, and state, and um, kind of with, with issues of kind of persecution and, um, you know, killing heretics or doing harm to, to, to people um, that are not of the Catholic or Christian faith. Um, how, do we, how do you guys reconcile that notion of, of Jesus saying that my kingdom is not of this world and not getting too steeped into the state to where there's not so much a blending, if that makes sense? Oh, yeah, it, it does. And certainly, I mean, well, you won't find the phrase uh, separation of church and state in any church document, but you won't find it in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution either. That was a, um, a comment made by, uh, I know it was Thomas Jefferson. But we do recognize, because Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And so Christianity from day one um, wanted to you know, be good, loyal citizens of the empire, um, at the same time you know, being very faithful uh, to their Christian faith. Um, when Constantine became emperor, um, his mother was St. Helena, he legalized Christianity, which had been persecuted for 300 years. Um, it, but he wasn't the one that made Christianity a state religion. That was uh, a few uh, Caesars uh, after him. I think it was around 384 that that, that took place. Um, there's a, 
a phrase or a word we call Caesaropapism, where um, Caesar tried to take prerogatives over uh, from um, the Pope and the, the religious leaders, the bishops and the priests. And the church was always opposed to that. We want to be distinct. At the same time, say we can still be a loyal, faithful Catholic Christian and be a good citizen at the same time, as long as the state doesn't ask us or command us to do something immoral. And so what was wrong what was happening with the Christians in the early church, they were being asked to sacrifice the false idols, to worship Caesar as a god. And they said, no, we, we, we can't do that. Um, now, over time, yes, there was a period of... A, 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 a portion of Italy known as the Papal States, uh, that was given, uh, it was called the, the Donation of Constantine, but actually it, it was a little bit later than that. But that was to make recompense because of all the 300 years Christians were being persecuted. Uh, the Lateran, uh, Basilica, the Vatican, St. Peter's, that was all property that the emperor had once owned and he turned over to the church. But there was that sense of independence. Um, sometimes the church and state work together because they had the same common um, goals. Obviously, you know, um, during the time of Christendom where there was just one church of Christianity, the Catholic Church, and you had the Holy Roman Emperor, um, you know, sometimes some good ones uh, did good things, other ones tried to take over. The Medicis, the Borgias, you know, they were getting their fingers in both the, the secular government and, and the church government. Um, but yes, you know, especially when you read like Gaudium et Spes from the Second Vatican Council um, in the Code of Canon, I mean, in the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, we do recognize that these are two distinct uh, functions in the world. Uh, the family, the state, and the church are what are considered the three natural institutions. Now, during the time of the Inquisition, it wasn't the church who imposed the death penalty. The church had the Inquisition because heresy was considered... Um, you know, disloyalty, it was the secular government that, you know, imposed the, the, the penalties, whether it was imprisonment or uh, execution. Um, we don't do that anymore because, you know, uh, we've, we've refined our, our, um, our perspective on how to manage things. And um, the heretics, as, as, as they were called, were always given the opportunity to recant, to repent. Uh, if they said, no, we don't then the church authorities turn them over uh, to the secular. But, yeah, there's been times where there was too much overlap. There was some, but those were always individual, an individual bishop or individual secular leader. But um, the church is the bride of Christ. She is distinct from the, the secular entity. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Adriana is in Miami, Florida, watching us also today on YouTube. Adriana, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Thank you, Father John. Uh, I have a quick question to ask you. Um, I understand that all Masses are healing Mass. However, I, you know... At church yesterday, they announced there's going to be a healing mass scheduled for later in the month, and I've heard that before. It's titled Healing and Liberation Masses. What is the difference between a regular mass and those that are titled Healing and Liberation Masses? Okay. Um, well, we want to make a distinction between uh, the sacrament of anointing of the sick, which can be given uh, during mass, and 
you know, sometimes it's called a healing mass. But the problem is that some priests and pastors use that term indiscriminately. Um, you could have a mass where you pray for the healing of people, where you have an imposition of hands, where, um, you know, people come up and are asked, you know, they ask for a prayer of blessing or, or healing. But that's distinct from the sacrament. The sacrament entails the use of the holy oil, the oil of the sick, and only a priest uh, can, can, can do that. And it's only to be done for people who are either in danger of death or have a serious uh, chronic uh, illness. Whereas uh, praying for healing, you could have any type of mouth. You could have an ingrown toenail. You could have um, you know, migraines, um, stomach problems, something that's not serious enough to have you hospitalized or endanger your, your life, but it's, it's, a, a, it's a cross that you carry. Um, so that, that's something that's very appropriate to have praying, praying for healing, whether in a Mass or outside a Mass. But when I, as a pastor, you know, I made it very clear if we had a healing Mass or deliverance is praying for being delivered from the oppression of the devil. That's distinct from the sacramental of official exorcism, which only a priest can do with authorization of his bishop. So sometimes people use it a little too indiscriminately. So they, they think of it, deliverance as being the same as exorcism or uh, praying for healing as being the same as anointing of the sick. And they're not, they're similar. But, uh, you know, if you have this mass, you know, and, and you see that they're just praying for healing, and all masses, though, as you rightfully point out, um, we're healed spiritually because if you're in the state of grace, venial sin is forgiven by going to mass, by using uh, holy water, by going to communion. Um, we pray in the prayers of the faithful that God heal all the sick. So uh, it's it's a more specific individual uh, instance where someone is anointed with the sacrament uh, and that very strict rules on that, whereas in other cases... You know, if you're just generic praying for healing, can be done uh, anytime. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Um, Marcus writes in, Why does Pope Francis wear the thinner pallium with the black crosses like the one of St. John Paul the Great? but not wear the thicker and wider pallium with red crosses of Pope Benedict XVI. It's like why you wear loafers or shoes with ties. <laughs> uh, there's no um, particular reason or signification of that. Um, there's an old saying from St. Thomas Aquinas, de gustibus non disputandum est. There's no argument over opinion or taste. So just like Pope Benedict used to like to wear different things, uh, he went into the the treasury there, the, the the museum, and got some things that previous popes wore. Pope Francis, you know, he doesn't like to wear the, the, the traditional things, but he still wears the white cassock. It's a little different uh, style, you know, and he, I think when he was made pope, he actually wore an old pair of shoes because he said they were comfortable. And then people were making a big stink about Pope Benedict wearing the, the red Prada shoes, but those were a gift uh, given to the pope, and Pope John Paul wore those same red shoes. So, um, you know, the pallium, I, I, if you remember, when Pope Benedict first became Pope, he had an even more elaborate pallium. It was long. It was like the ones that the original, I mean, the, going back to the uh, apostolic times, uh, were being worn. And it was getting a little too dangerous because he almost tripped on it. So then he went back to the, the more familiar one. But, yeah, Pope Francis's pallium, 
looks a little different. Look the same with the pectoral cross, the same with the ring, uh, the same with the with the crozier. So it's just a matter of taste. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's your ticket to Papal Fashion here on EWTN's Open Line Monday. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Dragilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- Two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. We have an email here from uh, Sharon and Chet, and they ask, "Dear Father, when a priest offers a blessing over the radio, is it efficacious every time it is heard over the air when the listener is predisposed to receive the blessing?" I'm referring to the recorded blessing of priests, not live. Uh, yes, uh, that question was posed to the Vatican uh, some years back after, you know, certainly it was made clear by the Pope at the time that if you received the blessing, Urbi et Orbe, from the Pope on, like, uh, January 1st uh, over the radio, that you would receive the same blessing as if you were physically there. Likewise with television, and now with the advent of recorded um, blessings, uh, if this is the, the first time you're listening to it and you are properly disposed, you're in the state of grace, yes, you can receive uh, some uh, beneficial grace uh, from that. Next up is Anna, another first-time caller on Long Island in New York, listening to the EWTN app. Anna, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hi, Father. Uh, I have a question for a friend. She's been married for about... 10 years, and since the beginning of her marriage, she's found that her spouse has had a problem with um, sexting women and porn addiction. There was an affair about a year ago, which was ended, and um, there's been a, a resurgence of porn addiction and sexting. Um, she and he, they both went to confession, and they've been seeking help. They've gone to counseling, and Recently, she said she found that he was looking online at questionable stuff again just the day after um, they had gone to Mass. And she said to him, you can't be taking communion if you're in sin, uh, to which he agreed. He doesn't think it's as bad as sin as perhaps it actually is. So I just wanted some your opinion and some guidance for my friend because she's Obviously, lost a lot of trust and hope, but doesn't want to give up on her marriage. Yes, well, that's certainly a, a sad to say. It's not. A, it's not an uncommon situation, but it's certainly a sad one. And um, you know, we do want to maintain, you know, death to us part. Um, you know that, that the the permanence of marriage, but um, one also needs to 
ascertain was this a problem he had prior to uh, as well as during the marriage. Um, I would say, first and foremost, they, you want, they want to pray to keep the marriage intact. Um, pray to St. Joseph. Uh, we have um, in the diocese and here at the seminary and when I was in the parish, uh, a thing called Friends of St. Joseph uh, was mostly for men, but now women get you know addicted to pornography as well. Uh, it was a way in which um, people who were struggling with uh, addiction to pornography would pray for and with each other. Um, there's some other online things uh, that are available. Uh, I, I can't recall them on the top of my head, but I'm sure if you uh, contact me through EWTN, I can find the, the resources for you. But there are some many different things available besides the usual thing, like Covenant Eyes helps, you know, it's software you put on the computer. But there's also online support uh, from a Catholic uh, uh, perspective to help people beat this horrible addiction. And in the meantime, you know, they need to go to confession uh, faithfully and regularly. And if they're in the state of mortal sin, they need to not go to communion. Um, but I would say, yes, you want to encourage them to stay together as a couple, but the same token, you know, he needs to, to get better. It's like if he had an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction or gambling addiction, you know, it's not going to be good for the marriage if he just treats it too casually. It is something that needs to be addressed, but by both of them, uh, the, the addict as well as uh, the person who's married to them. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Ava is back, driving through the great state of Oregon, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Ava, welcome to the program. Thank you. What can we do for so you today? My question, yes, my question to Father Sergio is about intincture and why, you know, we were using it at our church, uh, before COVID hit, you know, when you could, the priest would dip the Eucharist in the wine and then give it to us on the tongue. And uh, until one parishioner complained to the bishop, and then the bishop said we couldn't do it anymore. And then you have COVID where, you know, everybody's getting sick, and no, now they've brought back the goblet. Well, nobody wants to drink the wine from the goblet now. The chalice. Yes. Uh, well, uh, intinction is uh, a valid option, but the bishop can say he's not going to permit it. Now, one of the reasons why it's not just you know because they think it's too traditional or or uh, too conservative or whatever. Um, sometimes there's the concern that they don't want to um, refrain. I mean, if the if that diocese allows people to receive communion in the hand as well as on the tongue. Obviously, if, if the parish only has intention, then nobody can receive communion in the hand. They can only receive it on the tongue. Um, that was one of the concerns uh, a few bishops had at one of their recent uh, meetings uh, when they were discussing how to respond to the COVID. So that's why Alam just said, well, just, we'll just have communion by the host because we believe uh, in both species is the fullness of Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity in one species as well as in both. Um, one of the things I also noticed is when I had uh, communion under both forms uh, in my parish that 
if for any reason we didn't have it on a particular day, maybe we didn't have enough wine to consecrate, or it ran out, some people got mad at me and said, I got half a communion. I said, no, you did not get half a communion. You received the whole, you received the whole Jesus. He can't be parceled out. It's not uh, quantitative. Um, but again, continction is not, a, uh, is not forbidden. In fact, I as a priest, most of, the, most of the masses I go to where I'm concelebrating, we're told, please do intinction as a priest for yourself so that you know there's no danger of, of spreading any germs uh, among among the clergy. Um, I know it, one of the difficulties too is when you're doing by intinction, you know you have to make sure that the the patent is very close by because if you know there's a tendency to have a drop of the precious blood fall off the host as it was uh, intincted. Now the Byzantine, uh, the Eastern uh, Catholics, they do it all the time. That's the only way they receive is by by uh, intinction. So. Um, it can be done, but you know, if the bishop or the pastor don't do it, it's not necessarily uh, something that they're 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 being um, mean or or to uh, you know anti uh, tradition. But it's something that I think you know it can be. People should approach their pastor or their bishop in in uh, with charity and say, could we please have this, if not all the time, uh, on a regular basis? At least the option have one line where that's done. Um, for that, so that people who prefer that could go. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Be sure to join us for the rosary every day. Mother Angelica and the nuns at uh, Our Lady of the Angels Monastery in Hansville, Alabama at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And Father Benedict Rochelle and Simonetta, uh, the rosary is a place at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, both of those right here on EWTN Radio. Lillian is another first-time caller in the great state of Maryland, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Lillian, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm still holding. I need to get back to work. Or do you, you don't yes, what's, you're, on with Father, you're on with Father John. What's your question? Okay, my question is this. Um, is there any good reason why Pope Francis cropped the Latin Mass that most of us have got, you know, grown to love? And uh, it makes, you know, it's really, for us, it's part of our life. So he's taking it away from us. And I have a friend who says, I'm going to go to Presbyterian Church that is very close to Catholic. I I don't want to deal with this anymore. All these changes that don't make sense. So I'm ready to understand. I want to understand his good reason. If there's a good reason, let me know. Then, you know, as an obedient Catholic, I follow it. But if there's no good reason, I mean, we still have questions to ask. Yes. Oh, I appreciate your your, your question and what's going on here. Um, Pope Francis's uh, decision to um, restrict the extraordinary form, the the Trinitine Latin Mass, that's a prudential judgment. He has the full authority because he has full supreme authority as the Roman Pontiff to do it. But it's distinct from his teaching authority. Because when in his teaching authority, uh, he has the charism of infallibility. But infallibility does not reach into governance or in disciplinary areas. So you and I could disagree with his prudential judgment, yet we still have to obey and follow it. So uh, his decision to uh, restrict the, the old mass, you know, uh, some of it was based on, you know, uh, people were getting, were some people who went to the Trinitine mass were looking at 
the Novus Ordo or the, the, the Vatican II Mass as being inferior or uh, invalid, and certainly we don't want to say that. They're both valid. They're both, um, you know, licit. But his restriction was a disciplinary uh, decision, which, again, you and I could personally disagree with, but I, as a priest, can't go against it and say, I'm going to do it anyway. And worse yet, you know, join another, um, leave the church and join another sect or a schismatic uh, group or something like that. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that the church requires of us that are is not a, a de fide, a matter of faith, you know, like when, when we change the laws of fast and abstinence. However, if somebody, you know, maliciously said, no, I don't care what the church says, I'm going to eat meat anyway, that was a sin, okay? Now that they, they um, you know, abridged it and modified it, some people say, well, how could it be a sin in the old days? Now it's not. I said, these are human church laws that can be modified and changed. Likewise, you know, uh, whether a priest or a parish can have the old mass, that's a disciplinary thing. It's still a valid mass, but you want to stay in union with Peter. Ubi Petrus, Ibi Ecclesia, St. Ambrose said, where Peter is, there is the church. So even if I don't agree with his prudential judgment, I must obey as a good Catholic. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. We head next to the great Midwest where Kay is a first-time caller listening on Covenant Radio. Kay, you are on with Father John. Hello, Father. Um, Thanks for taking my call. I have a question. I've been wondering this for a while. Um, sometimes when I receive communion at Mass, I still have the host in my mouth when it is time to stand and say the next prayers. And sometimes I feel like I should continue to kneel instead of stand, but I've never seen anyone else do that. Um, and I was also taught by my great-grandma to never chew the host, which I don't want to do that anyway, but <laughs> is, there, is yes, there any um, advice? I remember when I was in third grade, sister uh, told us, do not bite or chew the host. And um, the church never mandated that. That was uh, um, a personal piety that, that a lot of people adopted. Certainly you can allow the host to dissolve in your mouth and that's fine. You can also chew it and swallow it because you are eating. I mean, that's part of the reception of Holy Communion. Um, now, if the host is still in your mouth, it hasn't fully dissolved, you haven't swallowed it, you can stay kneeling if you like, but you're not being disrespectful or irreverent if you stand up with the host still in your mouth for that final prayer and blessing, you just would want to certainly swallow it completely before you start having chit-chats with somebody or out in the parking lot or whatever. Um, but uh, I, my personal preference would be wait until it's completely swallowed and dissolved before you um, you know, start opening your mouth because you wouldn't want particles to come out. And Again, you want to be respectful, but at the same token, I know some people, it takes a little bit longer to digest uh, they have dry mouth. Okay, they need a they need water. May have to wait till after mass to go get a sip of water. Um, those are all practical things to be uh, conscious of. So you're not being disrespectful, but you know uh, prudence is always the best course. Thanks so much. We appreciate the phone call. K eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Next up is Dennis in the great state of New York, listening on Sirius XM channel one thirty. Dennis, you're on with Father John. Thank you, and thank you, Father John, for taking my call. If I could just start off, please remember my petitions in your prayers tonight. God knows okay, what they are. Okay, I will. 
I will. Father John, we need to start a movement in the church with maybe the Knights of Columbus, Catholic Daughters, to stop newspapers from publishing astrology and horoscopes. I see too many. I taught at a Catholic high school, and I saw too many young kids in a Catholic high school reading the horoscopes or astrology to start their day. Uh, sadly, and this is more frightening, some teachers did too. Mm. Uh, the church does not emphasize the first commandment. Thou shalt not worship false gods. And even the word good luck is wrong to say because luck is short for Lucifer. We got to trust everything is in God's will. So what about this uh, business of horoscopes and things in the newspapers? Yeah, I mean, he's got a point that, uh, you know, we should not be too casual about horoscopes and uh, fortune-telling, because that is a violation of the First Commandment. It is idolatry. It's condemned by the Church, and it's a sin if you go to a fortune-teller. Now, reading your horoscope in and of itself may not be sinful, but if you believe in it, it is. Okay, now, the, the practical aspect is that a lot of young people today, like the seminarians and the younger, they don't read a newspaper at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they they look online. So we would have to not only go after the newspapers, which would take care of the older people like us, but also the younger people, you've got to go onto social media, you've got to go on the Internet. So I see it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to um, to have that you know removed. But I agree with him that we should, we should talk about this at the pulpit and say, look, this is a violation of the first commandment. Do not believe in the horoscopes. Don't have your fortune told. Don't go to uh, crystal balls and, you know, burning bay leaves or whatever they're doing. They're, they're basils. They're into that sage. stuff now. Sage. Yeah, I say, I use sage when I'm cooking uh, veal salt and bulka. That's it. I'm not going to do any doing religious stuff with it. Okay. And worse is the worst of the worst is tarot cards and Ouija boards because then you're inviting the evil one directly into your into your life and into your house. But uh, astrology is is against our faith. Now, you could look at it just as a humorous thing, but I would say it's best not to because it's completely fake. It's not real, all right? It's like these biorhythms that people were doing when I was a kid. I remember my cousins were looking in the, in the news, oh, uh, you know, this is going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day if you do good and if, bad things happen has nothing to do with your biorhythms or your dna or you know uh, if magda the gypsy lady you know flipped the wrong card thanks dennis we appreciate the phone call next up is paul in the great state of rhode island listening on sirius xm channel 130 paul you're on with father john thank you father uh thank you for taking my call uh father i'd like to know how to explain to young people in high school who are, uh, I know for a fact, who are craving to learn Latin because my daughter's a director of languages in Massachusetts, and they are dropping French in favor of Latin because, and they have to add another Latin class. And I, how do I explain to, how does my daughter and myself explain to the young people how the Pope made this, this decision? What do I tell them? Uh, how, do I, how do I approach it? Okay, so you're asking about the um, the restrictions on the Latin Mass? Yeah, I mean, they're craving for Latin. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and and how, how, do I, how do I express it to them? How What made the Pope make that decision not to allow the Latin Mass? Uh, okay. How do I express it to them? 
Because I know well, they're praying. Yes. Well, first of all, the, any priest can still say the Mass in Latin. It's just we can. It's the new Mass or the Novus Ordo or the Vatican II Mass. I, as a priest, can say it in English or Latin at any time. I don't need any permission for that. It's the old Mass, the Trinity Mass, the extraordinary form, as Pope Benedict called it, that you need special permission. I got it from my bishop, so I can do it. But a priest needs that special permission. That was the same case under even Pope John Paul. It was Pope Benedict who opened up through a motu proprio that any priest in the world could say the extraordinary form without any special permissions. But even Pope John Paul had not gone that far in uh, a broad application. He did establish Ecclesia Dei that you know uh, promoted it to, to a degree. So I would say, again, this is a prudential judgment of the Pope. Have the priest say them, ask him if he can say the, 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 the current Mass in Latin. Um, he can say it ad orientum, too, because that's a legitimate option. Uh, it's not the Tridentine Mass, but it's valid, it's listed, and, you know, uh, if, you're, if you're not within driving distance of, like, the Fraternity of St. Peter or a, a designated chapel that the bishop of the diocese says, yes, you can have the extraordinary form, you can still go to the Novus Ordo Mass, in Latin um, or the vernacular, it's still valid. But I, I understand what you're saying. There, is, I mean, kids want to learn Latin because it helps th them appreciate and understand other languages, because many languages are, are built upon that. It also helps you understand, um, you know, have be the facility to read some old documents and books that were written only in Latin. So uh, I think it's a good thing. I just wouldn't want people to become like fanatics about it and all of a sudden they're you know burning torches and pitchforks outside the the bishop's house because uh that that would not be something to do 833-288-EWTN we have an email from earl and he says if you are not yet confirmed and you make a promise to god that you do not completely understand because you were in pain that was temporary and you ask god to relieve you of that pain in return for the promise that you were not aware of the full extent of it, does that promise hold up, or is it not a valid vow? Okay. Um, the, the, the only really valid vow is one that's made solemnly in church, like when uh, a man or woman becomes uh, a monk or a nun or a sister or a brother. Uh, they make the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Uh, that's binding in conscience on them. Okay, either for the rest of their life or they renew that. Um, or the vow of marriage, when you say, I do, uh, between a husband and wife. Or when the priest makes a promise of celibacy and respect and obedience to his bishop when he's ordained. These private vows or promises are not morally binding on you. You could always go to your confessor, uh, your spiritual director, and say, you know, I made this promise, but it's becoming too difficult or I really didn't realize what I was doing. And he could say, don't worry about it or he could give you uh, something else to do. But it's not the same like uh, the sacred vow, which uh, has full implications on it. Uh, next up is Richard, another first-time caller in Saginaw, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Richard, just a couple minutes left with Father Tregilio. What's your question today? I uh, really enjoy your program. A quick question, Father. What is the Church's view on uh, donating one's body uh, to science? Uh, that's allowed, as long as they guarantee that they'll treat 
whatever is left over with respect. So donating your body so that medical students can learn how to be better healers, um, you know, the church has never been against that. But what they do not want is people to, you know, after they, whatever they didn't use or whatever is left over to treat it with disrespectfully. They're, they almost always cremate the body parts because, you know, they can only last so long. But those, if it's possible, those, those cremains need to be buried respectfully. Um, and I know a lot of hospitals, you know, okay, they, they, because of contagion and that may not be able to give the, the, the cremains to the family. But I know a lot of hospitals still treat it with respect. They don't put it with the rest of the, the waste, uh, you know, that they use like, you know, old, like old needles and, and bandages and that. So, yes, you can donate your body uh, to science and just make the stipulation that you want your body treated with respect and you want only moral uh, experimentation to be done uh, on that body. And you might be, I mean, it's the same like organ donation. You can do that. Uh, you're not morally obligated, but if you do, you, you'll be saving a, a life somewhere along the line, as long as they don't kill you to get the organ. <laughs> That's the stipulation you want to make. And, uh, Father, we also have, uh, well, actually, let's go to Patricia. Well, no, check that. Let's let's check the, let's take this email. Sue wants to know, do you think people in heaven know what we are doing on earth? Yes, I believe they do because God infuses that knowledge to them because that's the whole essence of the communion of saints, that the saints in heaven and the souls of purgatory know what's going on. They don't have a body, so they don't have eyes or ears or a tongue. So God needs to put into their intellect, like you know, like a keyboard would into a hard drive. So yes, I believe that God puts into the, into the intellect infused knowledge so that they know what's going on with us so they can pray for us. And Father, would you pray for us and leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our celebrity producer, Charles Beery, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. Just getting things started this week. Uh, tomorrow we'll be coming to you live from the Knights of Columbus Supreme Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. Father Mitch on Wednesday, Father Brian Milady on Thursday, and our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, on Friday. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless. <laughs>